in uh, a section of Scripture that starts in John chapter 13. It concludes in John chapter 17. It's five chapters of an intimate conversation that takes place in an upper room. It's the Last Supper that Jesus would partake in with his disciples in just a few moments. They will all deny, run away, and betray him. Judas will turn him over to the Sanhedrin guard. He'll stand trial in the middle of the night in an illegal trial. They'll send him to Pilate. He'll ultimately be sentenced to scourging, which will be marked beyond recognition. A professional Roman execution officer will take a flagrum or a cat of nine tails, and begin to whip Jesus as his arms are extended above his head, exposing his ribs and his chest and his back to where he will be unrecognizable at the end of that scourging. Uh, Many men never made it off of a scourging uh, happening to them. Most died there, but he would have a patellum, the crossbar strapped to him, and he would then be ridiculed, jeered, sped upon, and mocked as he walked the Via Dolorosa where he would ultimately die at the place of Golgotha. Now, this is an absolute tragedy, yet for some reason in a few weeks we'll celebrate an inauguration on our calendar of it called Good Friday. It's a very interesting concept. How can the brutal massacre of Jesus be good? And I set it up that way because the question we've been asking is, when the why and the how or the why and the where come, how can this be good? How can, and this is what's scary, God be near and it be broke? Because that that probably disturbs and keeps me up at night more than any of the other questions. Uh, Why? Can God be near and it still be broke and there still be reason for us to have hope that it's going and it will be and perhaps even now be good? That's the question that Jesus answers in his last moments with his disciples. And so just to kind of set a coursework for where we're going over the next three weeks, this week we are going to look at the good called suffering, question mark. Next week we're going to look at how we overpromise and underdeliver. And there's a great biblical character named Peter who speaks first and apologizes second that I empathize with. Maybe you empathize with him. He makes some promises in the upper room that he doesn't keep outside of that room. Just like a lot of us make promises in this room that we don't keep outside of it, but I'll save that sermon for next week. Uh-huh. And then, <laughs> and then we're going to talk about in the week leading up to Easter how we go free like Barabbas. And it's going to be a great season of restoration and hope. So uh, back to the subject of suffering. We see Jesus in John 15, that's where we're going to start today, uh, address the subject that begins with persecution. If you want to get to suffering, we probably should start with persecution. Uh, It's a path that Jesus walked. In John 15, there's three relationships that Jesus addresses with his disciples before his cross. The first relationship in the first 11 verses is the disciples' relationship with Jesus. He speaks of the Holy Spirit who would come to give them fellowship in a way that they've yet to experience. He even says it's good for me to leave so that you can have the Holy Spirit. Most of us underestimate our need for or uh, don't live a life that is dependent upon enough the Holy Spirit. So Jesus speaks of the Spirit in verses 1 to 11, and uh, uh, verses 11 to 14, or excuse me, 12 to 17, he speaks of the believer's relationship with each other. 
Uh, and so he encourages them to get along and encourages them to love each other as Christ has loved them. And what we're looking at begins in verse 18, and it's a discussion around the disciple who wants to follow Jesus' relationship with the world. What does the disciple who wants to follow Jesus' relationship with the world look like? What, what can be expected uh, when you go into a world that has no knowledge of or no desire to turn to Jesus, what can be expected in that path as we walk in devotion with Christ against the current of culture? And, th- and that's what's brought up. We're going to see the word hate mentioned repeatedly over these verses. And it's not that we are to hate the world, but it's that as you walk in devotion to Jesus, you will find hate coming back from the world and pushing back on that devotion to Christ. John 15, that's where we're at. Let's look at the text together. We'll start in verse 18. I'll do my best not to stop and preach, but I'm a preacher, so no promises. Verse 18, if the world hates you, I already stopped. Okay, I love the question. The question's if. Many of you assume everybody hates me, You've got a chip on your shoulder, and you can't represent Christ to the least because you are uh, defensive instead of meek and kind. The, the question is if. is Not everybody's going to hate you. Some people have been prepared to walk in your path by the Holy Spirit so that they would encounter the kingdom of God and the word of God and the work of God in and through you, and they're not going to hate you, but they're actually going to respond and repent and become one of you, a follower of Christ. So don't, don't start with the assumption that everybody is out to get you, that everything's the devil. Don't be Bobby Boucher's mama up in here calling everything Satan. There's a lot of lost people who need to hear the gospel. There's a lot of people who walked away for various reasons from the gospel, and, and we've been given this opportunity and devotion and adoration of Jesus to walk with them into the world as a representative of that gospel to them. So the question is, if the world hates you, and, and in that moment, you're surprised, because everybody loves Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that what we culturally say? Isn't that what we all often, I, I love Jesus, I just don't love the, okay, if you come up to me and say, Russ, I love you, but I don't love your wife. How, how's that conversation, go? Let, let me explain how that conversation is going to go. I'm from Moonville. I was a part of the Moonville Mafia, nothing but love. <laughs> if we punch you for talking about our friends, what, what do you think is going to happen if you talk about our bride? Yet a lot of us are running around here going, man, I love Jesus. I just don't love the, huh. And I get everyone's hypocritical because there's only one person who wasn't a hypocrite. His name was Jesus. So you are a hypocrite in that fishbowl. And I get that church people can be very difficult because we like to protest against the wrong thing and sit down in silence whenever it's the right thing to stand up and speak about. A lot of people talk about we want to be multicultural and then you don't march when it's time to march. I'll leave that for later. So, so what, what do we have in the text? We, we, we have this moment of surprise where in a path of obedience towards Jesus, we're tempted to think, why, where, and, and why is this happening to me? He says this, remember. So the remedy when you are discouraged by persecution begins with remember. Remember what? Look at the text. Remember, that, I've already stopped four times. Remember that it hated, that it hated me first. 
The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this to you. So whenever you're wondering, why is this happening? They will all this to you, look at what the text says, because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. So, so if you walk in a path that loves Jesus more than anything, which is the normal Christian life, Okay, the normal Christian life is God over everything, and and I don't mean like the T-shirt that says like God and football and family. Like like get that crap off the shirt. Like it's not the same category. Like like your love for Jesus is a I sold everything, bought the field to have the costly pearl. I mean that Jesus avails himself, offers himself to whosoever, but he is in the following a God who is worthy of taking up your cross daily and going after. So he offers salvation to whoever, and salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. And for the disciple that's truly seen Jesus, it's a bill that we gladly pay. Why? Because he's worth it. He's better. He's of more value. He's greater. Better is one moment in the presence of God than a thousand moments in the pinnacles of this world. For some of you, you're not there yet, and that's okay. You're on a journey. But let me be very clear. Let me be very clear. Jesus is worth an absolute, total devotion that causes you to pivot from the current of this world and turn and walk with Christ against the current as a representative of the kingdom. So when persecution comes, remember, remember that they persecuted Jesus. Now, there's a story in the book of Acts. I love this story. It hit my mind earlier. And it's the story of Peter and John getting beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they don't leave that beating discouraged. Instead, they're like cheering and high-fiving the fact that they just experienced what Jesus promised in this text. It's this moment of, can you believe it? We, we, I, I mean, Pete, you know, he probably was like a brawler beforehand, like, you know, just a roughneck guy. Like, he, he, he drilled oil, okay? If there was oil to drill, like that, he was, a, he was a, that doesn't make sense here. He was just a roughneck guy, okay? And, and he's probably gotten to a lot of skirmishes where he threw a lot of punches. But this perhaps is the first one where Peter took a punch and didn't throw one back because he had a greater mission and purpose for what he was do it. And, and they celebrate the fact that we're getting persecuted because we're getting to be like Jesus. We're suffering. It hurts, but we're being like Jesus. So, so, so let me paint a picture. If you walk in obedience with Christ, you will experience pushback and resistance. For some of you didn't expect this. You gave your life to Jesus, thought it would be easy, and they're like, why did hell show up? Because a declaration of allegiance with Jesus is a declaration of war against the enemy. And the kingdom of this world has been defeated, yet he's still barking even though he has no teeth. So the enemy will bark, and resistance will come, especially when you want to honor God in places where you've yet to honor him by the Spirit. When you want to honor God in your marriage, it gets more difficult. When you want to honor God in your parenting, it can get discouraging. When you want to honor God at work, it can get peculiar and weird trying to speak up and talk about Jesus. When you want to honor God and make a difference in your neighborhood, some neighbors start ghosting you like, 
they do the J-Hoves, and they're in the house, and you know they're there, but they're not coming to the door. You know, it's going to happen because you're standing for the truth and walking with Christ, and if they did it to him, it will happen in obedience to you. Now, let me be clear. There's two reasons that Jesus gives for this persecution in the text. Number one is because of a citizenship change. There's been a citizenship change, a citizenship change. You can find this in John chapter 15, verse 19. He says this, if the world hates you, verse 18, remember that it hated me, the world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. So, so we now are citizens of a kingdom that is not to be marked and defined by cultural and national boundaries. We are citizens of a kingdom that is made up of uh, pilgrims from every nation and tribe and tongue who have been drawn in by this radical sacrifice, love, and work of Jesus and been made an uncommon, unique, and often peculiar family. See, if the gathering that's called church can be described by cultural markers outside the church, then they may be finding their unity and foundation in the wrong place. But, but you and I are citizens of a new kingdom, and as primary citizens here, it means everything outside of here becomes secondary. You and I have uh, now, as a result of this, we have a future hope that we live for in current time. We have a power that we've been given to profess a message till the end of time when Jesus comes back. We're called to be kingdom citizens. That, that means that I have a king before I have a country. And I may be independent in the country, but I am dependent on the king within the country. I just want to make sure us in America are getting that, because we have a unique privilege. We like to sing the battle hymn of the Republic on July 4th in church, and like, praise God. And, and, and none of this is necessarily bad. But my concern for you is some of you have gotten your citizenship and what comes first mixed up, like the flagpole out in front of the church where the American flag is bigger than the Christian flag. I love my country. I don't want to leave America. I ain't trying to go nowhere. I don't want to be a Canadian. Nope, nope, nope. They got good bacon. That's all they got. I, I love my country, but my king and the kingdom and his agenda trump whatever is going on within my country. Therefore, as a citizen of heaven, I have more in common, if I'm living it right by the Spirit, with another believer from another country under another flag who has a flag that flies higher called the kingdom of God that they stand under than other American people that are around me. Because my primary citizenship is that of heaven. That means the values of the kingdom of God are not perfectly modeled or shared in any kingdom of this earth. You are in the world according to the text, but you are not to be one with this world because you are a kingdom citizen of heaven. And Jesus elaborates on this in John 17 in his prayer, the high priestly prayer. If you skip over two chapters, he says this in verse 15. Look at it with me. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. They don't belong, but don't take them out. I'm not asking you to take them out of the, out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy 
by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So there will be persecution that will come because you ain't from here. And the way you live your life and the values that you hold to will bring up resistance from a world that works counter to those values and ideals, that works counter to the worldview that comes from the scripture. This is part of the journey. So the, the tension we live in is that we do not withdraw from the world, but we do not fit into the world. And we have to embrace that we are here to fully represent Christ now, but this is not home. So sometimes in faith, you do what everybody else says is careless because you're a kingdom citizen. Sometimes in faith, you in the middle of your life, because the Spirit leads, uproot and move to a country and a nation that you don't know anyone that's there because you feel this prompting and this desire to go. And, and sometimes the plane arrives and sometimes the plane doesn't, but your life is not directed by your will. It's directed by the very will and work of God in your life. I remember whenever we stepped out to plant a church in California, I had a uh, big level evangelical leader that set me down and for like an hour tried to convince and discourage me from coming to California to plant a church because they didn't need people from Moonville coming and trying to plant churches in Cali because apparently I have an accent, you know, like, you got an accent, I'm talk normal. Uh, you know, I, and, and it was super discouraging. We don't need this. We don't need more churches. Like, it's just going to be a mess. It's not going to work. No one's going to come, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward seven years. Hey, can you come and speak at this church plant conference about how to start churches to reach unreached areas of communities because it looks like God's done some pretty amazing things. And in my flesh, man, I wanted to speak up, but I'm a kingdom citizen. And I had an assignment. So instead of speaking up in carnality, I got to go and encourage others with it. You see, what seems careless to the world is often faith in an obedient walk towards Christ. The tension we embrace is this. As believers... We do not isolate from the world or assimilate into it. And if we do this right, we can expect persecution to come from it. What I'm preaching against is this idea of a nationalism over kingdom. This idea that a, a party embodies, let me just meddle a little bit more, a party embodies the values of the faith and therefore we demonize in broad strokes this group while we stand behind the safety of being separate from the scary people that view the world differently in our group. Uh, there's in Christ and there's not in Christ. And last I checked, no political party had the corner on in Christ and not in Christ. And if I'm walking in kingdom justice and in kingdom ideas, there will be strange moments where I find myself in alignment for justice here and in alignment for justice here and making both groups mad because I'm not in alignment with them on every issue in between. I'm talking about the mushy middle, baby. It's where kingdom citizens can be found. So we will experience persecution, number one, because our citizenship has changed. Number two, oh, let me ask this question again. Put that slide back up. Where in your life right now are you isolating from the world like a separatist? Hiding out. Is it your neighborhood? Is it at work? Is it in your marriage? Like, like, where are you isolating? Hopefully it's not your marriage. You know, that'd be weird. Where are you isolating? Let me ask you a different question. Where are you assimilating? You've given up on being distinct. You're just being like everybody else. This is the tension. We, we are citizens of heaven. We 
belong to Jesus. His kingdom is reigning, ruling, returning. It's growing. It's increasing. And we are to be a part of that prayer in our actions that's answering it by the Spirit that says, your kingdom come and your will be done here. Not, not in spite of me, but through me in my life. You will experience persecution. You will experience persecution because of your citizenship. Number two, you will experience persecution because of your devotion and your association. It's the second thing he brings up. Look at the text, verse 20. He says this. Uh, verse 20, he says, Do you remember what I told you? It's always the scariest question I ever hear from Jesus or someone. I've been a new pastor here for several months, and I'll still have people that come like, so do you remember my name? And I'm like, yeah, I did until you asked. <laughs> Put pressure on me, thunder. You know, like, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than his master since they persecuted me. Naturally, if you're with me, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this because of me. So if you're going to walk with Jesus, it will be pushed back upon. It will be persecuted against. There will be a resistance that comes with it because of your devotion and relationship with Christ. I never will forget, my wife and I got married, and uh, I had a friend who was really good at being single, um, like for a long time, and like, like admittedly was really good at being single. Like he played Xbox, ate canned cheese, lived in his parents' basement for free for a long time, like a long time. And uh, he was a phenomenal worship leader. He, he would come over on Tuesday nights, do a youth band practice, and then spend the night with us as newlyweds in our apartment. We had a split-wing apartment that had a second bedroom. And he would stay over there. And then we'd get up about noon, go into work together. That's what youth pastors do. We'd get up at noon. Not Joe, but me. Uh, <laughs> we, I'd get up at noon. We'd go, we'd, we'd go into work, play music, go home. Well, one night we got home for band practice, and there was no sweet tea in the fridge. And Morgan was getting ready for her real job um, that, <laughs> that she was going to the next day, where she had to get up early in the kitchen and Lee said, hey, there's no more sweet tea in the kitchen. I was like, yeah, we're out. We'll have to, you know, figure it out later. And we were getting ready to do something real mature, like play video games. And so, uh, you know, we kept playing. And after a minute, he said, well, why don't you tell her to make some? I couldn't see her, but I could see her. And I knew in that moment that my friend had become her enemy and we were at a dividing fork in the road. So I looked at him because she, she picked up a knife because she loves the Lord, but she went through a phase where she wore rings on every finger because she could handle it. Don't let that fool you. I fell in love with this version of her. You know. <laughs> I looked over, and she had a knife in her hand. She's like, I'm going to kill him. And I'm like, I know you are. And I looked at him. I was like, dude, you, this ain't good for me. Like, you got to stop. Here's the deal. My devotion to my wife meant that our relationship had to change, and we weren't changing fast enough. He didn't understand. You, you don't talk to my wife like that. You, you don't act that way around her. You see, her friends became my friends, and her enemies became my enemies, and my enemies became her enemies, and my friends became her friends, or they weren't. Because our devotion to each other meant that we lost some people that were with us in the past season that weren't going to move forward with us in the, in the next season. And if you're a newlywed, let me just go and tell you, there's some people that are probably going to have to drop off the list. And if they're still causing problems in the marriage, then it may speak to a lack of devotion rather than a devotion that leads to clarity of going, man, we, we can't be friends because every time you come around, my marriage, my family is in havoc and chaos and neglect. And I, I can't 
have the same kind of relationship that I used to have with you because I've got a new relationship with them and it is of greater importance than you. Yes, you are second. You are third. You don't come in the same seat or position as my spouse. My, my whole point in bringing it up is your, devotion, your devotion and association with Jesus means you're going to get his enemies. You get his enemies. Uh, which means there, there will be a pushback that comes in a long walk out obedience towards and with Christ. And so there will be persecution. Now, some of us are calling persecution persecution that ain't persecution, meaning like you're talking about being persecuted, but it don't look nothing like Jesus. That's what the text teaches. They'll persecute you because they persecuted me. If you're being persecuted because of your political opinion, chances are there's a lot of self in that and not as much of Christ as you want there to be. If you're being persecuted because of your news outlet, chances are there's a lot of self in that and there ain't as much of Jesus as you think there is. That's nationalism. And I will beat that wet dog out of here until it's gone. So, so we have to ask hard questions when we face resistance. Is this because I'm walking in an adoration and love of Jesus? Or is it coming from the fact that I am in myself or in my feelings and my devotion to Jesus is wavering and as I'm stating my opinions carnally, I'm doing what I've always done and that's be one who's just dividing in the stream from everybody else that's being divided in the stream by their own interest, opinions, and desire to be a celebrity. Okay, I'll, I'll move on. It seems like we've gotten that point home. Okay, so Persecutions addressed, John 15, flip over to John 16, and here's what he does. Jesus presses in with his example at the good that will come in persecution and suffering because of the faithful work of God. Here's the good that will come in the face of persecution and suffering because of the good work of God. There's four things I want you to see. I'm going to be quick, and that's not preacher speak. I really will be quick because I'm going to Charleston because Greenville County is on spring break. Praise God. John 16, verse 20. Unless revival breaks out, then we will stay here until we stop baptizing people. Verse 20, I tell you the truth, you will, the disciples, weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly be turned into joy. It will be like a woman suffering in the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now. I will see you again. Then you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth. You will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. Okay, so Jesus is about to endure the cross. He's going to hang naked, ridiculed, flies swarming around his flesh as he's bleeding, pulling up on the nail endings that have been driven into the most sensitive nerve endings of his body so that he can gather breath to speak words. Don't you ever think that a single word that Jesus spoke on the cross wasn't of great intentionality because it's in pain that every word was spoken so that it could be recorded for you and I. And in the face of that suffering, Jesus communicates the good that will come from our suffering by saying this. Number one, he goes first. Why? 800 years before his crucifixion in Isaiah 53, we get what's known by many theologians as the fifth gospel because it's so detailed in the kind of death and life that Jesus would live. And we're told in that text that he would be a man of sorrows. 
We're told in Romans chapter, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 12 that he is the all-sufficient high priest. What does that mean? It means that whatever it is you're going through, wherever you're at, whatever pain you have, whatever life circumstance is happening with you, there's never a moment where Jesus, having gone first, can't take you by the hand and walk you through it. He can empathize with it because he lived it. He was tempted, but he didn't fall into temptation. He experienced death but he didn't allow that grief to define the entirety of his life. He lost his father at a young age, more than likely. He's nowhere to be found by the time he's 33. He's not mentioned much at all outside of the birth narrative of his story. So he likely went through his teenage and formative years without a dad. He's all-sufficient because some of you don't have a dad, but he's the all-sufficient Savior who is able to lead you in that season whenever you don't know what it looks like. He walked with his mother through being a single mom because being a single mom, I hear, is quite difficult these days. He's a all-sufficient high priest, meaning you can turn to him in your hour of need, and he won't say, I'm God, I'm holy, I'm separate, but I, instead, in spite of that all being true, I'm a high priest who is able, because I've walked in your shoes and I've lived in your experience, to empathize with everything you go through, with every pain you feel, and to walk and lead you through it, because I went first. See, there's a difference when you face death's door, there's a difference in knowing I've got someone who's been to the other side with me walking through it than I'm in it by myself. Jesus' gospel isn't, I lived a good life, now you try and live a good one and get to me. No, he sent the Holy Spirit so that when you're on this side of pain, on this side of suffering, on this side of questioning, on this side of doubt, and you're thinking, how am I going to get there? You're not looking for God, and he's not waiting on you at a future destination, but he's in the present place with you as an all-sufficient Savior leading you to where he's gone because he goes first. Thanks, babe. He goes first. I mean, this is the beauty of what we have. So you can come to him in the brokenness of your life. You can come to him when the unthinkable has happened. You can come to him when you don't know what to do. You can come to him when sin has taken you farther than you want to go and it's got you doing things you don't want to do and it's kept you longer than you want to stay. You can come to him. I mean, the message over and over again is just come home. Just come home. You may be prodigal, but your last name didn't change. It's still son, ain't it? And if it's still son, then you can come home and you don't have to beg to be a servant in my house because you're a son in my house. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. Christ goes first. That's what verse 20 teaches us. He says this, verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 20, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly, suddenly turn to wonderful joy. Why? Because I'm going ahead of you. I'm going to make a way for you. Christ goes first, number one. Number two, Christ turns earthly pain into eternal joy. Uh, they will rejoice is what he says. The world, later in life, will rejoice over what I'm going to do. You're going to cry. You're going to think your life is wrecked and ruined. You're going to think it's over. But in the future, I'm going to apply this in a second. In the future, they'll call this day of my death good. Okay. okay let, me, let me get the application here. You may be in a season of life where the suffering has not let up and you've done had every prayer circle. They've thrown every bit of anointing oil that you can think. You're like, I'll be Pentecostal. I'll be Reformed. I'll be whatever I got to be for the Lord to answer me. And you've done all, and it ain't, nothing's fixing it. And in your mind, you're thinking it's never going to be good. It's always going to be bitter. It's always going to be rough. It's always going to be terrible. And an encouragement I, I want to give you in light of the cross is that if Jesus takes what is most brutal about his life, and he says it'll be joyful 
in time, there's reason for you and I to hope that what is not good will be good in time to come. He turns earthly pain into eternal joy. Number two, you see that in verses 20 and 22. I quoted a little bit of it for you. Number three, what's the good in suffering and persecution? Number three, Christ walked it along so that you wouldn't have to. We've drilled that point home, but verses 23 and 24 elaborate on that. At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father. And you and I, as Americans, we think we're, uh, it's owed to us as a right that God hears us. God has to hear me when I cry out. No, he doesn't. He didn't have to hear you. The only reason you have that right is because of the blood of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ that has filled you with the Spirit. So now we pray, according to the Scripture, we pray to the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son. We go straight to the throne room. That's why you're not helpless. You're not alone. The happenings of your life on earth are heard when you pray to the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son, in heaven. Some of you, the, the problem is you've not elevated your concern. You, you've elevated it to people that have some authority on earth, but you've not leveled it to the authority over the earth. And as a result, you've appealed to people that you thought could give you temporary comfort instead of looking to the God who holds all of time and all of eternity in his hands. You see, Christ was forsaken so that you and I would not be forsaken. Christ walked it alone so that you and I would not have to experience it. And then finally, number four, and here's the place I want to land the plane. Christ brings purpose to what seems purposeless. And Can you imagine? You've walked with Jesus for three years. You've seen Lazarus come out of a tomb. You've seen like, like, not like speculative miracles, but miracles that no one could refute happen. We like to see a miracle, and then we doubt it and question it because there's some ambiguity to it in our minds. Some of you have forgotten more miracles than others will ever experience. That was free. Some of you just need to remember. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's crazy. I, I think about this moment where the disciples see Jesus, who was untouchable, touched who was unbreakable, broken. I mean, everything came crashing down. And, and if they were looking at that one thread of a moment, it'd be really hard to make sense as to what God's doing, wouldn't it? Because in that moment, it looked like Jesus was losing. It looked like defeat was winning. Or that defeat was, you know, surely going to happen, that the enemy was winning. Which is why I'm so glad for this coffee cup verse that we've absolutely butchered in our church, because it gives context to what Jesus was doing in that moment. Romans 8, 28. <laughs> I love it. It says, and we know, we have confidence based off past faithfulness of God. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his Purpose. Familiar? Anybody heard it? Okay, a few nods. Anybody ever wonder why it wasn't true for your life? Let's get honest in church. Y'all want to be churchy in church. Get honest. Now, here, here's why I think we struggle with this verse out of, outside of taking it out of context. Uh, the first reason is we focus on the, on the end game. Most of us focus here. Good. Good 
is the end. Good can happen in the middle in the process, but, but, but good is assured in the end. And most of us are not at the end. We're in the process. And all we're thinking about is we've got to get there, and then we're miserable while we're here because we've lost sight of the bigger word, which is together. There's two points to make about this. Number one, in your suffering, in your pain, in your why and where with God, there's a together. Who's together? God and you. You got it together because God's in it with you. And here's what's even better about it. Together means all of it with God. Pain. Divorce. Abandonment. Abuse. Addiction. See, see none of it's meaningless. It, it may be a thread of a detail... But it's still there. And, and here's what's great. What God is saying in this text is, I'm taking the threads of the brokenness, the threads of the pain, the threads of the questions, the threads of the failure, the threads of the successes, the threads of the good moments, and I am weaving them together to make something that at some point in history will be good. There's an artist named Raphael, and back in a long time ago, he had several of his paintings commissioned uh, to be made into tapestries. And so this is a tapestry of Jesus and the disciples fishing that do look more European. I guess they hadn't made their way to Jerusalem to see that they were brown. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's trying, to, it's trying to, let's just get the point, not the details. Uh, so they're, they're throwing their nets to the other side. Peter's likely saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And in this picture, what you're seeing is 130 pounds of thread. And if you're not careful, you could, you could like zoom in on one thread to such an extent that you, you can't see that there's still useful gathering of fish happening over here because it just feels like a useless sinner in front of a God that they have nothing to be in deserve to be in front of over, over here. It, it, it's possible that one thread of a season of your life could take over everything to where you lose sight of the fact that, yes, that happened. It's real. They failed you. You, you came up short. I mean, tragically short. And people were mad and they left you. You didn't get the answer you thought you were going to get in that season. And it, it was longer than, it, than, than, than this little threat. Like it felt like a lifetime. So it's real. But according to, to, to Scripture, it's a part of something that's real too. And it's significantly greater and bigger. So I, I can only see at times my suffering or I can by the grace of God, as a citizen of God, understand that there's a promise that though this thread matters, it will not be the entirety of my story, that God has more for me on the other side of this, and he is taking what seems not good, and he's putting it together with what is good, him. He, he's taking what's, what's not good, and, and he's allowing us to bring it to what is good, and that's his hands, because in his Hands, he takes what the enemy meant for evil and he 
I think it's somewhere in this book called the Bible. He, he takes what the enemy meant for evil, and you're wanting revenge, and you want blood. And he's like, yeah, these hands have already poured the blood out. You, you, you want an answer. And he's like, these hands hold all the answer, not just to that question, but to every question that is in life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I, I'm not just an answer to one part of life. I am life. And so you, you've got threads that you're paying attention to. And my question is, are you putting them in the hands of the tapestry maker? Are you putting them in the hands of someone who can take what's not good and bring it together for something that's beautiful and good? And so, so I don't know, church, this doesn't seem like the kind of Sunday where you sit in your seat and you're like, oh, I got this together. Because some of you got threads that are blocking your vision. And perhaps the, the best thing you could do is find a little lint in that pocket and come and bring it up and go, God, it hurts. It's painful, Lord. Like, I, I don't know what you're going to do with it, but God, I'm bringing my thread of my failure and my singleness. I'm bringing the thread of, of my brokenness where they abandoned me and I can't trust anyone because I, I can't get over what they've done. But I'm going to bring it to your hands and I'm going to trust that what you do with it will be greater than what will happen if it's in my hands. So the altar's here, our prayer team's here. If you need to give your life to Jesus, you move as the Lord leads in just a moment. We're going to take communion as a church because it's the blood of Jesus that threads this whole thing together. It's his sacrifice that makes it worth the hope. But today can be a day of freedom. Not because the suffering's going away. Not because brokenness will end, per se. But because there's a God that's in it. I mean, he's in it. <laughs> I mean, you're so appointed, you ain't got time for non-appointments. You're so commissioned and empowered that you don't have time for walking in this season of thinking that there's a powerlessness or a weakness that will have its final say over you. You're not your addiction. You belong to Jesus. You're not your brokenness. You belong to Jesus. You're not that failed season of life. You, you belong to to Jesus. That child was not a mistake. They belong. <laughs> they belong to Jesus. I don't care what your mama told you. And I don't care what church she went to. They, they belong to, to, to Jesus. So I'm bringing my threads today and I'm asking to make a tapestry out of mine. How about yours? You move us to Lord Lee. Let's go. Let's go.